Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Steph and Nate have a Q&A about Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. We've got a special treat for you today. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today producer Steph is going to ask me some questions about Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones. Yes, I have been on the other end of this for since the beginning of time, it seems like. And I love this Rolling Stones series. So I figured we would go through and do a little Q&A for all the new listeners that might be just coming in. So my first question for you, and we talked about this a little bit uh, last week and the week before, but could you explain Brian Jones's appeal? Because when you look at him, he's not as overtly good looking as Mick Jagger was. Mick Jagger was pretty goddamn good looking, but Brian Jones wasn't that yet. He had women galore. One of the most beautiful women, Anita Pallenberg, was madly in love with him. Mick was just obsessed with them for, for a bit. Tell me why they were just falling all over themselves for this guy that actually looked kind of sickly. Well, I mean, you know, that's a matter of personal taste. So I can't explain why every particular fan was attracted to Brian Jones. And and there's different aspects. I mean, there's people who are fans of his playing or his leadership of the band or his his rebel image. But 
in the beginning, they were a pop group that had an audience of young females, and so he was mostly uh, a pop idol, a sex, a sex. What's the word? Sex star? Not sex star. Sex um, symbol. Sex symbol. Yeah, and I think it was it was just as simple as he looked like the Beatles with blonde hair. That that when the Stones played on British TV, it's five of them. They're kind of ugly looking. I mean, even Mick who was attractive was odd looking and especially in the early days was kind of awkward looking on, on especially on TV appearances, especially when they were trying to wear their uniforms, they're either their leather vests or their houndstooth check jackets. And, and they were clearly not comfortable or confident. And Brian stood out because he was blonde. He had a perfect Beatles haircut, which was absolutely, you know, the peak of fashion at the time. And then his haircut got slightly longer and he became more rebellious. And supposedly in the clubs in the early days, he was the, by far the most aggressive stage performer that he, you know, would shake his tambourine right in people's faces on the front row. He would make eye contact with dudes, girls, and then, you know, taunt them when, when they got pissed off. And and from the beginning had a confrontational stage presence. And also, I think it was Alan Clayson, one of his biographers, who said that his fundamental appeal was androgyny laced with dread. And so there was something off about Brian, and you could you could see that. I mean, in the high tide and green grass gatefold sleeve, there's a piece of graffiti that some girl wrote, sweet little innocent Brian. But I mean, that was <laughs> clearly, she might not have known how ironic it was, but the Stones put it in there as a very ironic thing because he was neither sweet nor innocent in any way, shape, or form. And I think the fact that he could change so quickly from, you know, straightforward, bright smile, kind of, uh, kind of reminiscent of Kurt Cobain. He never had that completely beautiful smile that Kurt Cobain had, but he could smile quite attractively. But he would also then tend to show flashes of a more sinister aspect. And I think that young girls, when they're navigating the teen idol process, that there's an aspect of, you know, they often pick the least threatening member at first, but then we kind of move up to the more threatening, more masculine members. And so um, I, th I think he kind of combined both of that. Like he could be very feminine and friendly and smiley and also very snarly and mean and had the bags under his eyes and was kind of unhealthy. And there's always been this elegance and attractiveness to these tubercular unhealthy figures. I mean, Chopin was a sex symbol in the 19th century, even as he was wasting away with tuberculosis. It's also a known fact that people with, with late stage TB are super horny. And so Jimmy Rogers, the country singer was another one, you know, wasting away, coughing up blood and, um, hitting on both of the women in the Carter family at the same time, <laughs> to no avail. I mean, they wanted no part of him, but but um, I think there's always been sort of an, an appeal to the unhealthy musician, and Brian definitely had that. All in the early days, he looked more robust and healthier than he did later on. And obviously, the later on was laced with lots of drugs and alcohol. Yeah, although the the drugs and alcohol uh, by '64, he was referring to himself as as London's youngest alcoholic and, and drinking vodka by the pint glass and taking lots of purple hearts to stay awake while he did it. So, you know, the drugs and alcohol started pretty early on. 
Let's talk about Brian's family because his parents molded the man he became and sort of in an inadvertent way. I don't think they meant to create this beast that he turns into, but talk to us a little bit about his family life before the stones. Well, I think the most obviously palpably tragic and alienating part of his, his childhood was the death of his sister when he was only three and she died of leukemia and and this was not unheard of in those days but it was it was never talked about i mean you know the 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 baby was just taken away they didn't explain to three-year-old brian where the baby was going and later on they told told brian that she had been taken away because she was naughty and it could happen to him too which is one of the most psychopathic and horrifying things to tell a small child and paul trinka has accounts of cousins who babysat him when he was very young and he would sneak out he had found pictures of his sister and he would sneak those out and ask his cousin did i really have a sister and is this her and and things like that so it was really you know very pathetic and there's also accounts of his mother bawling him out um, for misbehavior at church right in the front of, you know, right outside the front door of the church in front of the whole congregation. And and they were a very unemotional family, a Welsh Baptist, very strict religious, and, and just couldn't convey emotional affection. His father apparently felt a lot of emotional affection and tried to convey it. We've got his letters and we've also got interviews he did after the fact and interviews both his parents did with Stanley Booth. And I think his parents loved him in their way. They just had very rigid expectations of of him. And it was an era when ill health wasn't openly spoken of. I mean, you know, for example, Paul McCartney's parents never told Paul and his brother that his mother was dying of breast cancer. They just went to spend the night at their aunt and uncle's several times. And then one day found out mom wasn't going to be coming back. So this was very common. To, it was, a, I guess the theory was, you know, they, you're protecting the children by not telling them the truth. Um, and also the Bush family, um, you know, the, the the presidential family in America, George Herbert Walker Bush and Barbara, they had a daughter who died, I believe, also of leukemia. And they didn't tell any of the Bush boys what had happened. So George and Jeb were a little twisted from that. And Barbara Bush, by all accounts, was a ghastly, cruel, uh, domineering woman. I, I've never, you know, and uh, so we, we, we have limited testimony about Brian's childhood because his, his mother, as far as I know, only did one interview with Stanley Booth. His father did a few interviews. His sister, his surviving sister, never talked about Brian. I believe she's still alive. They also never acknowledged any of his illegitimate children, many of whom uh, made attempts to connect with their grandparents and they refused to connect. So, you know, it's just a very rigid, formal religious and they were also very into music but classical music only and they they disapproved disapproved of jazz heavily and especially disapproved of blues and so when brian got into jazz and then blues they really really frowned on that and and they had high aspirations as he was a grammar school boy who should have been on a path to cambridge or oxford uh, you know, best case, maybe a, a second tier university if he hadn't done quite as well and easily had the capabilities to do that kind of schoolwork. But especially after he got asthma, that's when he became the quote unquote full time professional rebel. And I believe my theory is that he was one of these kids who was 
uh, a golden boy, good at sports, good at school. And then when he got asthma and he couldn't play cricket and he couldn't play rugby, couldn't play football, what Americans call soccer anymore, he curdled. And, and it's kind of a Luciferian tale, you know, where Lucifer is God's favorite angel, the first angel that he made, the keeper of the light, the bringer of the dawn, the angel of, of knowledge and wisdom. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, Lucifer is so jealous that he becomes a rebel and satanic. And I think that something similar happened to Brian where once he could no longer be the alpha dominant jock kid at school, he became, as Ian Stewart said, a full-time professional rebel. And as Ian Stewart also said, since he wasn't naturally obnoxious, he was naturally a pretty nice guy, or at least that's what Stu and Keith Richards have both said, that once he made that, he had to make an effort to be obnoxious and having made the effort, he was really obnoxious. Seems like he leaned really far into it. Now, you have selected a pretty good song here for our first cue up for music. Why don't you explain to us why you picked this song and what it yeah, is? Yeah, this is You Can't Catch Me, which is a classic Chuck Berry song about having a flying car that can get away from the police. And um, I picked this because at one point in 64 or so, Brian said, I believe to Don Malloy, who was one of the mothers of his illegitimate children, that I play the parts you can't hear. And part of that was self-pity because Andrew Lou Goldham was kind of mixing his parts down. But part of it was also a deliberate choice that Brian had made. He was a huge fan of Freddie Green, who was the rhythm guitarist with the Count Basie band. And Freddie Green is a guy who played an acoustic guitar in a band with a trap drum kit and multiple brass horns and, and reed instruments and, and a full piano. And he pioneered the style of jazz rhythm guitar where you play a different chord on every beat. And you're not the rhythm guitarist isn't really audible, but they're driving the whole rhythm section. And if they weren't there, you would miss them. And so this was one of Ryan's biggest heroes. And so he had deliberately picked this style of rhythm guitar playing. And this song, You Can't Catch Me, I picked a, a part around Keith Richards' guitar solo. So you can hear Brian underneath doing some really pretty impressive flourishes on rhythm guitar. And and the one of the magics of his collaboration with Keith, it wasn't just that on some songs, particularly Jimmy Reed covers, that they would both play dueling leads, although those were just kind of blues runs. They weren't, you know, improvised solos or it wasn't the kind of stuff Stephen Stills and Neil Young are going to do a few years later and certainly nothing like what Diggy Betts and Dwayne Allman are going to do 10 years later with the Allman Brothers. But it was dueling leads or, you know, one guy would go down the neck and another guy would up, go up the neck. They also had the thing where Keith would play the Chuck Berry style songs and Brian would play the Bo Diddley style songs. They both had complete mastery and and stuff. But when they played rhythm guitar or on Chuck Berry songs, when Keith would be playing, you know, part rhythm, part lead, Brian would be playing these very complimentary and almost conflicting rhythm guitar parts and they could both lock down an independent rhythm that's just slightly off from the other one which is very very hard to do both players have to have an absolute command of their own sense of you know mastery of rhythm to do that and this is just an example i think of one of brian jones's best performances as a rhythm guitarist this is you can't catch me
All right, so that was You Can't Catch Me by the Rolling Stones. So Nate, I need to back up for a second. Tell us why you are so obsessed with the Stones and particular this part of their history, this chapter. Well, I'm actually only interested in this period of the Stones. The rest of the Stones' career, and I acknowledge that the the big four albums are greater than anything they ever did with Brian. But growing up, I was always drawn to the 60s rock. I was I was a Beatles fan from early on, and, and I, for whatever reason, I always wanted to understand everything about music history. And the Rolling Stone record guide, that the, the second edition, the 1983 edition, was kind of my Bible, and I was way over, you know, I believed everything in it and bought a bunch of albums I ended up not liking just because Dave Marsh said they were great. And it was very helpful to navigate a discography like the Rolling Stones, where they had, you know, I don't know, by the 80s, I think they had 25 or 30 albums, something like that. It was overwhelming. There's all these greatest hits compilations and all these albums that had duplicate songs. And and they gave five stars to High Tide and Green Grass, which is a, a singles collection that came out, I believe, in 1966. And, it, and I was... Uh, old enough to buy it on vinyl and it had a full fold out gate sleeve with a booklet in it with all these pictures and brian jones was incredibly photogenic and dominated the photos and so i was immediately fascinated with it who is this guy because you know by i'd heard of mick and keith and also i think a big factor was that when i was 10 years old i was living in arlington texas and it was either the Dallas Morning News or the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I want to say it was a Star-Telegram because that's the one we got every Sunday. Had this um, big Sunday feature on the 10th anniversary of Brian Jones's death. This would have been June of, of 1970 or July, early July of 1979. And we had just moved to Arlington. And I, and I remember reading this article about, you know, this celebrity rock star who drowns in a swimming pool and they had big pictures of Cotchford Farm, which was not only Brian's last residence, but it was the place where A.A. Milne lived when he wrote Winnie the Pooh for Christopher Robin. That's the basis of the Hundred Acre Wood and all that. And they talked about that. So I was already intrigued with this guy for non-musical reasons. And then I get High Tide and Green Grass, which is just a great album. I mean, it's got Satisfaction and Get Off My Cloud and 19th and Nervous Breakdown and all those kind of classic Stones 60s hits. And 66 was this apex of pop fashions. And Brian was very much at the front of that. And the Stones just looked incredibly cool to me in the 80s and you know, the 1966 Stones. And it was you know, if you self-identified as punk or new wave, it was okay to like stuff before 66. Like you had to not like the fat hair, hair band stuff that came later or the heavier stuff, but this early poppy trebly early rock and roll was very much okay. Or at least uh, I thought it was. And so that's how I first became obsessed with him. And then I read Philip Norman's book, the stones and immediately, you know, he's, realizing and i think i read stanley booth's true adventures of the rolling stones shortly thereafter and in both of those books he comes out as the central figure of the band because he's tragic he's crazy he's always the one causing the problems he was always at the center of any problems they were having then he has the early tragic death and and influences the rest of the band and so and then combine that with what the hell did this guy play? Like even even his 
most famously guitar part, which is the last time, the Rolling Stone record guide credited to Keith Richards. So I didn't even know that he played that part until the 2000s when video of, of the Stones playing you know, was available. And you could just see Brian playing that the lead line on Dead Sullivan show. And I was like, holy crap, he played that. I knew he played the marimbas on Under My Thumb. I knew he played the sitar on Paint It Black. I mean, this is this guy who can supposedly play any instrument, pick it up, and 15 minutes later, he can play it. So that was fascinating. And there's all this controversy about who played what. And Keith Richards uh, clearly did play multiple guitar parts on definitely all over Let It Bleed. I mean, Brian hardly played anything on Let It Bleed. But then Beggar's Banquet, the album before that, I became obsessed with, I think at the, it must've been 2003, 2004. I literally only had one CD in my car the entire year. It was Becker's Banquet. And it was a special mix I had made that had Jumpin' Jack Flash on it as well because they recorded those in the same sessions. And I was going through, there's a pretty good book, the the Rolling Stone Sessions that, that lists every session. But unlike the Beatles, where we know exactly who was at every session. We have the session tapes from every session. Abbey Road kept everything in meticulous order. Mark Lewison has gone through and cataloged every session tape in meticulous detail. There's only a couple of questions on the Beatles tracks about where we don't know exactly who played what. Um, but the Stones traveled. They played in, they recorded in, in at least half a dozen different studios in the 60s alone. They started systematically destroying um, the outtakes by the late 60s because they'd been, uh, they were so worried about bootleggers. Keith Richards makes claims about what he played that don't necessarily always hold water. And so I spent a long time just obsessing about who played what. And when I, and I didn't get into the really early Stones, the first album the first EP, the the Stones and Bones session that, you know, with Glenn Johns that was unreleased uh, from 63 until very late, like in the 90s uh, and 2000s. And once I heard those early tracks where you know for a fact that Brian's playing guitar on almost every track because they didn't have the, they had two tracks. They didn't have any ability to overdub. And so they're recording live as a band. And if you hear two guitars, well, one's Keith and one's Brian. And then you know that Brian, as a rule, played the slide parts. Although Keith had some weird tremolo thing that made it sound like slide guitar sometimes. And so I would go on these rabbit trails of thinking that that Brian had played these lead slide parts on all these songs. It turns out it was Keith with a, with a weird using a weird function on his Vox amp that kind of emulated a slide guitar. Anyway, I just just spent hundreds or thousands of hours of obsessively listening to the early Stone stuff and Beggar's Banquet and and reading everything I could get my hands on about who played what, and getting another material enough to where there are certain instances where I'm willing to say now brian played guitar on that like i'm pretty sure brian jones played the lead guitar on jumping jack flash now keith plays some lead guitar too but i'm I'm totally confident brian jones played guitar on jumping jack flash and by all accounts he was there playing guitar bill wyman says so and by all accounts bill wyman wrote that riff and the band had charlie bill and brian had worked that into something before making keith even show up and add lyrics and put their names on it i mean (laughs) 
know, I, I don't know to what extent Keith, Keith probably restructured the song. Keith was a master of, of guitar chords and song structure. Um, and, and Mick clearly wrote the lyrics and Keith probably wrote the melody, but nonetheless, the riff and some of the structure was already in place. And, and, uh, you know, Brian played the lead guitar part. And there's another song sitting on a fence that has this silk string acoustic guitar lead that I'm 100% convinced Brian Jones played on, even though, and there is an eyewitness account, Rod, the infamous Rodney Bigenheimer, um, groupie DJ, LA scenester and serial rapist. Um, he was at the sessions for Sitting on a Fence, and he confirms that Brian was playing guitar on that session, although he said mostly it was Keith. And um, Greg Prevost, who wrote this excellent book, The Rolling Stones Gear, co-wrote it. He he took that to mean that Keith must have played the lead part, but I believe Brian played his lead part in the three minutes and 20 seconds it takes to listen to the song, and there's a couple of, of muffed notes they didn't bother to fix, so it's not a part that was labored over, and that Keith stayed behind and labored over his um, rhythm guitar part on the song for several hours. So anyway, that that's... I don't even know what question I was asked at this point. That's okay. I like hearing you wax poetic here. It's time to cue up our next song. So tell us what our song is and why you picked it. And this is another one of these uh, Brian and Keith uh, rhythm guitar duels. And for my money, the greatest they ever did. This is their version of Chuck Berry's Around and Around. And I honestly think that the Stones cut Chuck on this one, that, that this is one of the few songs where they actually bettered uh their source material which is something the beatles did all the time because john lennon was a better singer than 90 of of professional singers and brought more intensity to it but mick i don't think was really a great rock and roll singer until beggar's banquet and so they they they're the early stones suffer because of that and and especially when you compare them to the source material but because of the way keith and brian are playing these what I would call dueling rhythm guitar parts. And you have to listen closely. Brian's down in the mix. Uh, but listen closely. And if you're a guitar player, try playing one part and then trying to play the other part. And, you know, it's the things you can do these days. You can get one part isolated and try to play Brian's part when you're only hearing Keith's part or play Keith's part when you're only hearing Brian's part. It's really, really hard because unless you have a really powerful sense of rhythm that you can lock into you're going to be magnetically, gravitationally pulled to the other guitarist's rhythm. And they're just barely off, just enough to really make it swing. And that was Brian's magic as the arranger and founder and musical dictator of the early Stones. Sounds so sweet. I had to take me a chance. Rose out of my seat. I just had to dance. Started moving my feet. Whoa, clapping my hands. I said the joint was rocking. Going round and round. Getting real and rocking. And that was Around and Around by the Rolling Stones. Now I want to get into Brian and Mick and Keith. That little trio, they were so volatile, but at times they could be very, very close. And um, Marianne Faithful has noted in her book 
how obsessed Mick was with Brian. Could you break down that trio's relationship a little bit better for new listeners? Well, it was a very complicated triangle. And essentially, they were a very tight trio. And the Stones as a pack were incredibly tight. I mean, the Stones were notorious for nobody set in with the Stones. They had their unit. And they played, and and if you were another musician that was on tour with them or something, you didn't ask to sit in and jam with the Stones. They were a closed unit. And there's multiple accounts of the Stones getting in fistfights with Americans uh, and Brits, you know. But they they stood up for each other in fistfights over and over again. There's uh, multiple instances of of Brian and Mick back to back fistfighting their way out of some redneck bar. There's also multiple instances of the stones deliberately abandoning Brian and mobs of, of fans and, and things like that. Um, but fundamentally the dynamic was that whenever two of them were feeling close, that the third person would be on the outside and be jealous. And all three of them, especially in 62 and 63, when they were first forming the band and they were at their maximum closeness as a trio, at various times, all three of them were the odd man out. And I think early on, Brian was the odd man out the least often. That initially, it was he and Keith that were tight because Mick was going to the London School of Economics and Mick wasn't taking the band particularly seriously. And Brian and Keith were spending all day, every day in this freezing cold apartment where you had to put shillings into a machine to run the heater. And some days they didn't have shillings and they'd have to go out and steal milk bottles from their neighbors and redeem them things like that, steal pocket change from their neighbors. Brian would, uh, Brian lost his jobs, uh, infamously losing what jobs he had for stealing from the cash register. But Brian and Keith would spend all day, every day playing guitar together and listening to records together. And Mick was on the outs. And there was also a weird sexual dynamic where Mick started wearing house coats and slippers and flouncing around the house and mincing around and, you know, going around limp wristed and, and talking in an effeminate voice and, and Mick and Brian, I mean, Keith and Brian's response was to get even more butch and macho and, and really make fun of Mick for that. And, you know, Anita Pallenberg alleges that Mick and Brian had some kind of sexual relationship around this time and that that permanently damaged their relationship that Mick never really forgave him for, you know, calling his bluff on that. Um, Brian was not the kind of person that you teased sexually. He was going to call your bluff and, and take you up on it. Man, woman, child, dog, you know, whatever. I don't know of any instances of him molesting children or engaging in bestiality, but I wouldn't put anything past the guy. Like he was just a satyr uh, that would try to screw anything that moved. And um, but there were also times when Keith would be the odd man out and particularly when women were involved, like Mick very quickly picked up on the fact that Brian was a very experienced young man as far as women. And Don Malloy has accounts of watching Brian demonstrating to Mick how to make a woman orgasm with your hands and oral sex. Um, and you know, very, in very specific detail. And Keith was completely innocent at this point in time. I mean, he was basically, you know, the kind of kid that wanted to play with his guitar and train set and then toy guns and, and wasn't really ready for the world of sex and love. And, had this very early on kind of hand holding kiss on the cheek relationship that Brian then 
uh, actually seduced and and de-virginized Keith's young girlfriend and in a very and then showed off the bloody sheets in a very traumatic and cruel way. And you know when Mick and Brian first got realized they had this in common and wanted to go out for drinks together, Brian infamously stole all of Keith's money. And this is a point when none of them have any money, but I think Keith's mom had dropped by and left him a few quid or whatever. And Brian sneaks into Keith's room while he's sleeping, steals the money and takes Mick out for drinks. So this was the kind of bullshit that uh, the Troika was founded on. And then later on, of course, Mick and Keith became close as the songwriters and the the pair that lived with Andrew Lou Goldham and the leaders of the band. And, and they, you know, when Brian was on the outs, he was really on the outs and they, they, punished him and teased him and mocked him you know for years and abandoned him to fans multiple times and you know he brought it on himself he insisted on on getting his own transportation to gigs and staying in better uh venues than the other stones at least until they put a stop to it and uh you know infamously got five pounds more a week in the original deal and, 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 you know, when the other stones found out that stuff, they never forgave him. And also, you know, I think the big sin was when he was agreeing with Eric Eastman that if, if Mick Jagger couldn't play on the BBC radio, well, they'd just get rid of Mick, um, which is a, a total betrayal of everything that the band stood for. And I, I can definitely understand why Mick and Keith never forgave him for that particular stunt. All right. So it is time for us to take a sponsor break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about the entrance of Anita Pallenberg. So we'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. 
And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And we're back. Now, Nate, let's talk about Anita Pallenberg because she is a key figure within this trio. Tell us about her and why she is so vital in this story. Well, Anita Pallenberg was German. She spoke multiple languages. She'd already established herself as a professional model and actress. And there were other women uh, of this kind of ilk around the scene, like Nico, later Nico of the Velvet Underground, uh, had showed up in London around the same time. And and Brian and Jimmy Page and Andrew Lou Goldham actually recorded a single with her. Uh, and Brian and Jimmy Page playing rhythm guitar on that track is is a, another masterclass in in dual rhythm guitars. Um, but Anita and Brian met in Germany when he was having a particularly hard time with the Stones, and she saw him crying on stage. I think he was playing on the organ on on uh, the on uh, um, oh, what's that song? Time is on my side on time is on my side. And this was a fan favorite. Like the fans would see Brian moving over to the organ and they would know that, uh, at times on my side, it was coming up and get excited. And he was in the spotlight crying on stage. And that, that kind of attracted her attention. And she went backstage and met him and, and they spent the night together. And the first night she just held him while he cried and blubbered and, and unloaded all the, this big pity party about how cruel Keith and Mick were being to him. And, that then evolved into this extremely sexual, passionate relationship that they had where they pushed every kind of sexual boundary. Uh, he, he had also pushed a lot of boundaries with Nico by her accounts. Um, but what made it special was they became this pair and this partnership, and they were as charismatic as Brian was on his own with Anita. They were it was a, a you know multiplier effect they were 10 times as charismatic and it gave him the confidence to be a fa- a force within the stones again as soon as Mick and Keith saw Anita they were both immediately intimidated cuz she was somebody she had a mouth on her and she could cut you to ribbons in five languages and the combination of her and Brian was suddenly this new dynamic power force. And you can hear it in the Stones records throughout 64, he kind of recedes and recedes in the background. And, you know, by the time of satisfaction, he allegedly didn't even play on satisfaction. And suddenly in 65, after Anita's come on the scene, he and Keith are doing the most guitar weaving that they've ever did, that they do these songs. I'm free blue turns to gray uh, there's several others where there are classic instances of what Keith would call guitar weaving, which is, I think, commonly misunderstood to mean that both guitarists are improvising lead parts at the same time. And to some extent, that's how Keith and Mick Taylor would do it. And to some extent, that's how he and Ron would do it. But the way Keith and Brian would do it was they would both lock in on a very simple pattern, but different you know, uh, each each one is playing something incredibly simple, but they overlap in a way that makes them sound complicated. And they start doing a bunch of these around this time. And Keith was still with Linda Keith, the woman he wrote Ruby Tuesday about, but that relationship was extremely volatile. She was 
moving in a faster lane. Keith hadn't even started smoking pot yet. And Linda Keith's already into pot and LSD and, you know, discovers Jimi Hendrix and has an affair with him. She also was having an affair with Brian throughout Keith and Brian, uh, Keith and Linda's relationship, um, which I'm sure Brian flaunted in Keith's face the whole time. As soon as Brian and Anita are living together, Keith starts hanging out at their apartment all the time. And the 65 tour had been very brutal. That's the the tour where the Stones roadies were sicked on him and, and broke a couple of ribs to punish him for having beaten up a beauty queen and given her a black eye. That happened the same night Keith Richards wrote Satisfaction. But on the 66 tour, things were more chill and the three of them were getting along. And there's accounts of all three of them having dinner together. There's accounts of, of you know, there's photos of, of uh, making Keith poolside, you know, flipping the bird at the camera together and very much co-conspirators. There's accounts of them at Andy Warhol's factory just absolutely being too cool for school. I mean, imagine walking into Andy Warhol's factory and just dissing everybody there. Like everybody there is kissing your ass. And and Brian and Keith were just shooting people down left and right and being total assholes and, and being the alphas on the scene. That's how hip they were. And the same thing would happen in London in 66 when Brian and Anita would walk in a club everybody stepped aside i mean the every the, the whole club would notice they had come in and even you know the cray brothers and the biggest gangsters in london supposedly would step aside and make way for brian that's how big a king of the scene he was at the time and you know keith was drawn to that and mick was kind of the odd man out keith and brian had done lsd together in december of 65 and mick was kind of the paul mccartney of the situation where he was very cautious about it and i don't believe he took acid until uh the redlands bust in 1967 imagine that being your first acid trip um (laughs) (laughs) when the police come in but uh but brian and keith were on this different faster heavier wavelength throughout 66 and in some ways, that makes Aftermath kind of the perfect album because Keith and Mick co-wrote the songs on the tour. But by the time they got to L.A. to record the album, Keith and Brian were very tight. And so Brian jumped back into his old role of arranger and domineering studio presence. And even Andrew Lou Goldham gives him shout outs for his work on that album, um, you know, learning to play so many instruments and and you know coming up with so many arrangement ideas and it's if you look at those whole sessions and there's a double album's worth of sessions they recorded at that time including songs like 19th nervous breakdown and several songs that only came out on the flowers lp like out of time and um uh, sitting on a fence and ride on baby and it's not just that Brian plays marimba on some songs and sitar on some songs and, you know, but it's like on one song, he's playing harmonica on another song. He's playing uh, slide guitar on another song. He's playing two rhythm guitar parts on under my thumb. He's playing acoustic rhythm guitar and marimbas. I mean, on almost every song he's playing two parts, he plays keyboards on multiple songs and he's got a very eccentric uh, style of playing an organ of the organ, like a bass. Uh, that's notable on the song sad day and so he was just all over that those sessions and then between the buttons was headed in that same direction and i'll go to my grave being convinced that he played guitar on miss amanda jones and and a couple of other songs so the songs on that album where you hear multiple guitar parts i believe were brian and keith and it's their last hurrah because brian very early on in his sessions went to morocco with anita and broke his wrist trying to punch her. And he never fully recovered his guitar playing ability. Although 
in their 1967 tour, he's audible playing guitar uh, on on live uh, tapes from both the 66 and 67 tour. Well, the 67 tour is the ones that happened after his accident. So he did recover and he clearly played guitar on Jumpin' Jack Flash, or I believe he played guitar on Jumpin' Jack Flash. But by 69, when he had left the Stones and was trying to form his own band, he was playing all kinds of instruments, but not guitar. And like when he worked on the soundtrack for Anita's movie, Mort and Totschlag, he has Jimmy Page come in and play all the guitar parts. Now, Brian's playing half a dozen instruments on those sessions, but he's not playing guitar. So something happened around that time where he became uncomfortable and lacked confidence in his guitar playing, even though there's recorded evidence that he could still play a pretty formidable guitar uh, when they were live. And that's going to bring us to our next cue. You mentioned this earlier. You're talking about Omfrey. Tell us why you picked this song. This is just a classic example of guitar weaving of Mick, uh, I mean, Keith and Brian playing complimentary guitar parts. They're both just, um, they're not finger picking, but they're, they're, they're picking notes. They're holding chords and picking notes out. They're both playing extremely simple patterns. They're not even really in tune together. Um, which is a weird thing because everybody knows that Brian had perfect pitch and, um, you know, to be the kind of slide guitar player he was, he could hear microtones and notes between notes, but sometimes he would let him play out of tune. It was, it was not something he was obsessed with. And this, this isn't the worst example of, of that, but, um, anyway, it's just something where if you sit down, if you're a guitar player, try to pick out one part and then, try to try to hear the other part and play the, the one part it's very hard to stick to your own part i've found at least um but this is i'm free and this is this is keith and brian guitar weaving That was I'm Free. Now, this is a very, very long tale. So obviously, we will do multiple episodes on this. But I want to get back to Anita Pallenberg a little bit more. How did she end up with Keith? I mean, Brian basically chased her into Keith's arms. The, their relationship was violent from the beginning. Brian wasn't a very big guy. And Anita was a fairly large woman and, and was very tough. He obviously had the edge and and hurt her more than she hurt him, but they would have these back and forth fights, and many times she won. Um, but still, you know, woman beat her bad thing, and Brian was a terrible, uh, just a, the worst boyfriend you could imagine. And they had this house on Courtfield Road, this apartment that was the big London hangout party scene for hipsters. Keith was practically living there. Um, Brian couldn't handle LSD, but he kept taking it. And every time he took it, he would have these nightmares and frequently would be, you know, curled up in a corner weeping or afraid of snakes again. And, you know, Keith would mock him openly. Oi, Brian, is it the snakes again? <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it was just a big joke to everyone around him. But he was going through this this psychic hell uh, right in front of him. And so he's this very weak, vulnerable, self-sabotaging, awful, abusive person and Keith's there just faithfully 
hanging out uh, day in, day out. And he's Keith Richards in 1966. He's this incredible superstar, stud, very confident, genius musician, you know, one of the hippest guys in the world, one of the leading musicians in, in rock and roll at a time when rock and roll is absolutely culturally ascendant. And they have this fateful trip to Morocco, like they have the Redlands bust. And the only reason that Brian and Anita weren't at the Redlands bust was because Brian was staying late in London to work on the soundtrack. So they were like, hey guys. Let's back up because we've mentioned the Redlands bust a couple of times. So tell everybody about that really quick so that we have a reference point to it. Okay. Yeah. Good, good reminder. So the Redlands bust is this, this, this event in early 1967. Redlands was this medieval manse that Keith Richards had purchased and lived in sometimes. It was outside London, I don't know, half an hour drive, 45-minute hour drive outside London. And they have a party. Um, There's uh, Robert Fraser, who's an art dealer, was there. This was the undoing of his life. He got caught with heroin there and, and, and never really recovered from the downward spiral, ended up losing his art gallery and everything. Um, George Harrison and Patty Harrison were also there. And the news of the world, um, there's this whole fiasco because the news of the world had published a story where they quoted Mick Jagger bragging about all the drugs he had taken and how LSD wasn't even cool anymore. And, and now that the squares are taking it and all this stuff and Mick Jagger filed a libel suit because he hadn't said any of that stuff. And it turns out they'd been talking to Brian Jones in a club and the idiot was high and running his mouth. And they attributed this stuff to Mick Jagger and Mick Jagger made the infamous classic mistake of suing for slander. And uh, the British slander laws give the sewer, the person suing more power than, than they give in the States, but it's still very hard to win a slander case against a newspaper. And so the news of the world, you know, which ultimately was shut down in 2011 for hacking into the phones of victims, <gasps> of parents of victims of child murder. And that was in the, the era when they were owned by Rupert Murdoch. The 60s, they were not yet owned by Rupert Murdoch, but they were basically garbage digging, trash hounds, scumbag reporters. And they start spying on the Stones all the time. And they tip off the police that that there's this party going on at Keith Richards' house. And they're pretty sure it's a drug party. And in fact, there was this guy, very mysterious figure, David Schneiderman, who basically just appears in the Stones story, shows up in London from California has this reputation as the man with the great acid and is invited to this party and apparently had a briefcase full of acid. And there's all kinds of conspiracy theories and conspiracy fact around this guy being some kind of uh, government agent for the U.S., just a, a very shady, suspicious character. But he's the person supplying the acid of the party, probably is the person who tipped off the news of the world. The news of the world and the police camp out outside Redlands. They know that George Harrison's there. And at the time, the Beatles are still sacrosanct. And they're not going to raid the place while there's a Beatle on the grounds. As soon as George and Patty leave, which is about six in the evening, uh, the police raid the place. And... Um, it's a pretty mellow party. I mean, you know, it's 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 like half a dozen people. They're they're smoking pot and take they had taken LSD earlier in the day. At this point in time, I think they were eating supper and drinking tea. Mary and Faithful had just taken a hot bath. I was walking around the house wrapped in a giant bearskin rug. She's not really being immodest. I mean, it was kind of you know, 
flouncy or whatever swinging at the time you know she's nude under the rug and and pretty uninhibited about it but the police make it this just absolute scandal and 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 you know the, this myth comes out that when the police came in that Mick Jagger was was violating her with a Mars bar and um, <laughs> just ridiculous stuff. But the, this is a story that stuck with Marianne Faithful like an albatross became part of English culture folklore and really uh, harmed her in the long run. Um, so that's the Redlands bust. So and go then, back to Anita ending up with Keith now. Okay. So after the Redlands bust, their legal advice and management advice is get out of the country. And, you know, Brian has gone to Morocco several times already at this point. He's gone with Anita once and broken his hand. He went with Linda Leach, uh, Linda Lawrence previously, his uh, another baby mama of his, who's going to become Linda Leach when she marries Donovan Leach. So it's comfortable grounds to go to Morocco. Uh, the, the Keith and Brian and Anita set off in Keith's pretty new um, Bentley limousine, the the blue lena i think he called it and brian's partying so much as usual with not a modicum of sense he gives himself pneumonia and has to be left in a hospital i believe in toulouse and keith and anita continue on without him and you know they're in the back of this big limo they can roll the the window up and block off the chauffeur and you know, supposedly there was a blowjob in the back of the limo after a day or two of incredible sexual tension. And they make it to Morocco. And then by that point, Brian's recovered enough to be sending telegrams and phone calls demanding that Anita come and get him. And Anita flies back to London, gets Marianne faithful. The two of them pick up Brian and they fly to Gibraltar and play his tapes for the monkeys. The monkeys don't like his tapes. He cries. Um, and then they arrive uh, in Tunisia and mix there and the whole stones entourage is there. Brian continues to just be his asshole self. And, and there's a particularly bad beating he gave Anita. And also he showed up at one point with two Berber prostitutes and wanted to have a foursome and Anita wasn't into it at that moment. It's something she might've certainly the kind of thing she was into on other occasions, but not on that one. And Keith was so disgusted that, they basically tricked Brian into going to the town square to see some musicians and Keith organizes the entire stones entourage packing up and leaving. And Brian gets back to the hotel and uh, they've checked out of his room for him and taken all his luggage. He has no money, no nothing. They just ditched him in Morocco. He, he, he was together enough to get on the phone and manage to get back to England, but it was a very um, shattering experience for him. Although, it wasn't the experience that ultimately shattered him. What what ultimately got him was that I believe the day the Redlands trial started, the police busted him. And this guy, uh, Norman Pilger, I want to say, who was a police sergeant who later went to prison for, for, for faking evidence. And the same guy busted Donovan. He busted John Lennon. He busted George Harrison. He busted Brian twice. Uh, and was convicted later on of planting evidence. And um, the first time, I don't think they needed to. Brian was just in, in his apartment at Courtfield Road with lots of drugs everywhere, and they busted him. But then in October of 68, midway through the beggar's banquet sessions, he was busted again, and it was a complete plant where they had um, uh, produced a, a ball of wool with a ball of hash in the center of it. And just ridiculous. Like, Brian wasn't knitting. And... Um, 
you know, they claim to have found it in some bottom drawer in a under a bed somewhere. And, you know, it was a, a pretty obvious plant. But there's reason to believe that someone within the Stones organization tipped off the police as to his location. And, you know, because Brian was moving to different apartments every night to try to avoid the police. And the police, you know, Mick actually has a statement somewhere. I've been able to find it recently, but where he was quite sympathetic to Brian and the way he was being hounded by the police and that they, they, zeroed in on that Brian was weak and was the kind of person that would break mentally with a harassment campaign and they, and they put it on him. So that's what really broke Brian in May of 68. The, the, the Pallenberg breakup was in early 67 and he definitely recovered from that. He's all over the satanic majesty sessions. He, he plays some of, some of his best contributions ever on songs like we love you and 2000 light years from home. He mastered the Mellotron um, and, you know, plays the harp and the sitar and all kinds of Indian instruments all over satanic majesties. Um, and does a Beatles session around this time, plays saxophone on, you know, my name, look up my number. And I believe he played, a Mellotron on uh, Baby, You're a Rich Man. Uh, the, the official account is that John Lennon played that. But if you listen to that stuff, either John Lennon was listening to a lot of Brian Jones or which w- I wouldn't put it past him. He was certainly talented enough to hear and mimic something like that. Or Brian set in and played some very Moroccan influence stuff on Baby, You're a Rich Man, which N- Lennon never plays anything like that on another Beatles track. And Brian played that kind of stuff all over the place on Satanic Majesty. So Anyway, the point being that he did recover from being abandoned by Anita and, in fact, immediately shacked up with Linda Keith in a deliberate attempt at a tit for tat, uh, which goes tragically wrong when Linda Keith, you know, attempts suicide in his apartment and is found nude and, and comatose by the police at one point. And, um, you know, just classic example of Brian Jones is not where you want to go uh, if you're in trouble. <laughs> so let's. Let's go into our last song, Flight 505. Tell us why you picked this song and then take us out until next week for more of the Brian Jones saga. Um, This is one. uh, There's two songs on the Aftermath album, uh, Flight 505 and Stupid Girl, where Brian and Keith do the rhythm guitar attack and both of them are playing i believe two guitar parts each so it's even more complicated than the stuff they were doing and um fly 505 is one where you can hear brian doing some of the same rhythm tricks that he does on you can't catch me Flight 505 from the Aftermath Sessions, actually on the Aftermath album. Ian Stewart's on piano there, and Keith and Brian are uh, uh, playing 
multiple rhythm guitar parts uh, on it and it's it's i think the uh mid-period sounds that they're absolute best and it's it's to me stupid girl of flight 505 show that brian was still contributing very strongly on guitar as his 19th nervous breakdown from the same sessions or don't don't you bother me where he plays slide guitar uh also um it's not easy where he plays the lead guitar part very unusually. And I believe he played the lead guitar part on uh, sitting on a fence as well. And that was flight 505. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you're enjoying my Brian Jones obsession. I'm picking a lot of psychic scabs here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate will return with another Let It Roll Nightmare from the vaults. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.